listen to that sound. It's so incredible, so vital, so modern sounding. That's music by a 28-year-old Stravinsky, his Firebird Ballet. You can tell he's on the verge of something new, something never heard before. Three years later, he would revolutionize music with a very famous piece. Let's listen. Startling music there, so vital, so incredible, no less so today than it was in 1913 when it was first premiered to, well, some say a riot. We heard a little bit of the last movement, the sacrificial dance of the Rite of Spring by Igor Stravinsky. Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm Seth Bostead. I'm going to be talking about that piece because, of course, it's the 100th anniversary, and so the Rite of Spring is everywhere. Why is the Rite of Spring everywhere? Why is everyone talking about this great piece? Well, why am I talking about it with a contemporary classical music show? Well, because the influence is still very, very much felt in our own time, and I want to trace that development from 1913 to our own time, that use of ostinatos, the incredible rhythmic vitality, the brutal, unclassical subject matter we have here. He's describing a ritual in which a virgin is sacrificed so that the village may have a, a prosperous spring. Uh, this kind of thing would never have, have occurred in the classical era. It's, it's a modernist piece of music. And so Stravinsky here is a modernist composer, one of the great titans of modernism. And you can feel the influence all the way to our own era. But you can't talk about Stravinsky and musical modernism without talking about that other great titan of modernism, 
Arnold Schoenberg. And I think it's highly significant that in 1912, the year before Rite of Spring, Arnold Schoenberg premiered his great piece, Pierrot Lunaire, one of the first pieces to be freely atonal and also very influential in its own right. So this is the first in a three-part series in which I'll be talking about the incredible influences of these two great titans of musical modernism from their time through our own time. And truly no composer from 1912-1913 to our own era has been able to escape their influence. One of those composers was a young Aaron Copland, who in the 1920s traveled to Paris to study with Nadia Boulanger, who was a good friend of Stravinsky's. I want to play two movements from his ballet, Hear Ye, Hear Ye. This is from 1934. This is actually music I didn't know before researching this show, but it's, it's very young Copland, energetic, clearly shows the influences of Stravinsky, a lot of jazz in it. I'm going to play a couple of excerpts towards the end of the ballet. And uh, this is a courtroom drama here. The witness tells his story, which begins in mystery, as the liner notes say, with a percussion-laden jazz dance by the chorus girls. Uh, we will hear that, actually. It is mysterious, and then you hear the dance. And then the solo dancers come in, and this reaches a frenzied climax of red-hot jazz, during which a maniac runs in and a gunshot is heard once again. Let's have a listen. Two excerpts from Hear Ye, Hear Ye, 1934, a very young Aaron Copeland. This is the London Sinfonietta performing, Oliver Nesson conducting.
a gunshot closing that music as a maniac runs into the courtroom and shoots the witness dead. Two movements from Copeland's Ballet from 1934. Hear ye, hear ye. We heard the chorus girl's third dance and the pas de deux number three and murder. That was Oliver Nussen conducting the London Sinfonietta. Another composer who often freely talked about his debt to Stravinsky was the French-born composer Edgard Varesse. Varesse was very interested in timbre and rhythm, the kind of things that Stravinsky had in spades, of course. He was not the kind of person who would have been interested in Schoenberg's overly cerebral approach to composition with his new ordering of tones and pitch classes and pitch sets and things. None of this was of interest to Varesse. He was very interested in percussion, new sounds and timbres. He became known as the father of electronic music. He was very excited when electronic music developed because it offered such a wealth of new sounds to him. The piece that I want to play by him is Amérique. And uh, especially this one part that is so indebted to the Rite of Spring, the famous bassoon solo that opens the Rite of Spring. Let's quickly just have a listen to that so you know what I'm talking about. This is the opening of the Rite of Spring by Igor Stravinsky. Just a little bit there of the opening of The Rite of Spring by Igor Stravinsky, that very famous bassoon solo. Let's have a listen now to about four or five minutes of Amarique by Edgard Varese. And you're going to hear the flute. It's very, very clearly derived from that bassoon solo. It sounds very much like that. But I think the rest of the piece owes a clear debt to The Rite of Spring also. The textures, the rhythmic punctuations, the sounds, even the orchestration. Let's have a listen to as much as we can of Amarique, Edgard Varese. This is Pierre Boulez conducting the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Thank you. 
an excerpt of Amérique by composer Edgard Varese, performed there by Pierre Boulez, leading the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, clearly indebted to Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, that flute solo, or actually it's an alto flute that opens the piece, very similar to the bassoon solo that opens the Rite of Spring, the textures, the timbres, everything. Uh, of course, the siren, that's uniquely Varese. That's, <laughs> that's one of his great contributions to music. He loved the siren. But it's very clear to hear Stravinsky's influence. Another composer who was definitely influenced by Stravinsky, at least in the early years, is Bella Bartok. And I think that his piece, The Miraculous Mandarin, which he composed in the early 20s, shows musical similarities to The Rite of Spring. But I'm really thinking here, the, the reason I want to play it is that I think it shows similarities also in the subject matter. Stravinsky, of course, has a, the brutal story of a, a virgin who's sacrificed by these knife-wielding dancers. Um, I mean, it's, it's really difficult to watch even today and it's a clear break from classical ballet with tutus and, and everybody happy and, and it's it's subject matter of, of uh, well certainly not murder <laughs> um, Bartok's miraculous Mandarin is, is similar in this vein an expressionist vein that Stravinsky opened up in musical modernism the miraculous Mandarin is about prostitution murder betrayal drugs uh, it's basically the life of, of the lower classes in a big city, and it caused a scandal, much like Rite of Spring did when it was premiered, and it was actually banned for a subsequent performance for many, many years. Let's hear a little bit of The Miraculous Mandarin by Bella Bartok. Once again, here's Pierre Boulez leading the Chicago Symphony Orchestra.
We heard a little bit there of Bella Bartok's great ballet, Miraculous Mandarin, performed by Pierre Boulez, leading the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I think the Stravinskyan influence is very clear there musically, but I also wanted to play it because subject matter-wise, it's uh, very indebted to Stravinsky also, and of course the two ballets have a similar history. Miraculous Mandarin also had a spectacular premiere, definitely attended by Scandal at its premiere, and then banned from performance for many years thereafter because of its sexual content. So very similar in nature to Stravinsky, and both, I think, classic examples of expressionism in art, um, which is a big part of the modernist movement. But again, Stravinsky is one half, uh, in my mind at least, of uh, modernism in music, Schoenberg being the other. I don't think any composer that came after that can escape their influence. You're listening to Relevant Tones, a show featuring the music of contemporary composers. This is the first in a three-part series tracing the titans of musical modernism, Schoenberg and Stravinsky. Today I'm listening to music by Stravinsky and by composers influenced by him. You can find out more information about the show on our Facebook page or on our website at relevanttones.com. Talking about the music of Igor Stravinsky on today's program, and actually it's part of a larger series of programs, though, examining Stravinsky and Schoenberg, the two titans of musical modernism, as I think of them. I really think in the 20th century, these are the two composers more than any others that influenced everybody else and with whom we simply have to deal 1912, we have Schoenberg's great Pierrot Lunaire, his last free atonal piece, which leads into his serial period, still feeling the effects of the serial revolution in many ways. And then in 1913, the 100th anniversary now in 2013 of Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring. And Stravinsky, what, what an amazing man. If he had done nothing more than write The Rite of Spring and perhaps the two ballets before it, his place in musical history would be absolutely secure. He dragged classical music, almost kicking and screaming, into the modernist era with his primitive rhythms and his Russian folk music and the, the, the brutal plot, again, as I said before. Very unclassical, a clear break from the past. But Stravinsky, being the restless intellect that he was, wasn't happy <laughs> just modernizing and revolutionizing music. Only seven years after the premiere of The Rite of Spring, he moves in a completely different direction with the ballet Pulcinella. This is the first of what would come to be called his neoclassical pieces, uh, which he wrote from 1920 until the early 50s. So a little over 30 years there. The reason that Pulcinella was called neoclassical is that he borrowed many tunes from the 18th century composer Pergolesi. So he's looking backwards now instead of looking forwards. And he's also pouring this music into clear classical molds. Let's have a listen to just a little bit of Pulcinella to show you what I'm talking about.
Just a Taste of Pulcinella by Igor Stravinsky. You can hear there that uh, it's clearly classical in nature. The tunes are perhaps derived by Pergolesi, perhaps by another composer. Historians these days are not quite so sure. Let's jump up to 1940 now, the Symphony in C. Very, very classical in nature, very classical in structure. We're going to hear the third movement of Symphony in C by Igor Stravinsky. This is George Schulte leading the Chicago Symphony Orchestra.
The third movement of Symphony in C by Igor Stravinsky. That was George Schulte leading the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Sounds very classical, doesn't it? Or, or a far cry from uh, the Rite of Spring. Yet this is the same composer, and that is Stravinsky's great strength. After the neoclassical period, he goes through a, a religious conversion of sorts, or reconversion, I guess, and uh, composes the Symphony of Psalms and several other pieces in a religious vein. Then he briefly flirts with serialism, um, but he's always investing these styles with his own personality, his own intellect, his humor, his ostinatos, his inventive use of rhythm. Stravinsky was a master at taking any musical style, learning it thoroughly, and making it his own. So Symphony in C is written in 1940, neoclassical music at its best, I think, and it shows the strength of Stravinsky as an artist, as, uh, the integrity of the man, really, because in 1940, Atonal music, the serial system of Schoenberg, was just becoming the dominant form. And by 1950, certainly by 1953, when Stravinsky's clearly moving out of his neoclassical period, the serial system is the dominant form of music in this country and in many countries. And if you as a composer were not writing in that system, I mean, well, you were, you were excoriated. The, the rhetoric was so heated, so intense. Pierre Boulez said, anyone not writing in the 12-tone system is of no use. And he underscored, no use. I've said it before on the show because it just bears repeating. It's hard to remember these days um, how heated that rhetoric was and how many composers that weren't writing in 12-tone had a difficult time getting performed. So for Stravinsky to write his own music and, like I said, you know, kind of blithely write this beautiful classical music clearly in a classical form, it shows the strength of the man, and it shows that he thought there was still life in these old forms. He thought that there was life in tonality. No, it's, it's not dead yet. 1939, the year before Stravinsky wrote the Symphony in C, was the birth year of Louis Andreessen, a composer who would take all of this very much to heart. And I, we're going to hear a little bit of his piece called Die Stadt, which is clearly influenced by Stravinsky in terms of its rhythmic usage, especially a lot of ostinatos, odd meters, things tied over the bar line, so you don't ever know what time signature you're in. But I think it's also indebted to Stravinsky in other ways. It's my contention that the minimalists, of which Andreessen is one, could not have made their great reaction against Schoenberg and the atonal revolution if Stravinsky hadn't made his first. Let's have a listen to a little bit of Die Stadt by Louis Andreessen.
Just an excerpt there of the great piece Die Stadt, or The City, by Dutch composer Louis Andriessen, clearly influenced by Stravinsky. You can hear, in, I think, in the wind writing, certainly the rhythms. Also a, a major, major piece in the minimalist movement. And as I said right before we heard the piece, I really don't believe that minimalism would have been as successful as it was if it weren't for Stravinsky's innovations with the neoclassical period, showing that there was an alternative to uh, what Schoenberg thought of as his invincible logic, <laughs> that music had to go to 12-tone and nothing else was possible. 
One of the great minimalists, of course, is Steve Reich. He was part of what came to be known as the downtown scene in New York. And when I was a composition student, there was the uptown and downtown uh, scenes in New York City. And you had to identify as one or the other. The uptown were the guys that went to Columbia University, and they were all Schoenbergians, the serialists. They wore suits, and, and uh, they played this really thorny, very, very difficult music. They were very serious, kind of dour, actually. Uh, the downtownists were inspired by John Cage and the minimalists, and they were free improvisers. They were, uh, you know, they, they wrote a lot of minimal music. They were inspired by rock and a lot of other things going on. And I've come to realize now as an adult that the uptown downtown scene, I mean, one, you'll never find a more concise dichotomy of ideologies in one city that, that, that relates to all the things happening in music at that time. And then two, it, it occurs to me now that uh, really this uptown downtown divide relates all the way back to the Schoenberg-Stravinsky divide of 1912-1913. Very fascinating. Let's have a listen to a piece by Steve Reich, again, very influenced by Stravinsky, as he says himself. In fact, he even quotes part of Stravinsky's Wind Symphony. Let's have a listen to Ensemble Modern perform movements two and three of City Life by Steve Reich, Peter Rundell conducting.
movements there, movements two and three of City Life by Steve Reich. That was Ensemble Modern with Peter Rundell conducting. And, you know, even if you don't know the specific part of Stravinsky's Wind Symphony that's being quoted there, you have to admit it sounds a lot like Stravinsky. Um, and I think that the, uh, the ostinatos that Stravinsky favored, those repeated rhythmic patterns, well, it's a natural jump from there to the repeated rhythmic patterns of minimalism. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that minimalism is a direct outgrowth of Stravinsky's use of ostinato. Well, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this music, uh, music influenced by the composer Stravinsky, one of the two titans of musical modernism, as I am calling them, the other being Schoenberg. On next week's program, I'll be playing the music of Schoenberg and uh, following his stream from 1912, Pierrot Lenaire, all the way to the modern era. I hope you'll join me as we continue this fascinating journey. Relevant Tones is produced by Jesse McCorders at WFMT, with special thanks to Seth Kelly. For more information about the program and the artists we've featured, you can find us on Facebook or visit our website at relevanttones.com. Relevant Tones is made possible by the generous support of Grobner Capital Management, Carol Joins and Abby O'Neill, DePaul University, the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, an anonymous donor, and the listener supporters of WFMT. I'm your host, Seth Bosted, and thank you very much for listening. <laughs>